Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. Was the Bauhaus truly revolutionary? Some people think so. Pulp non-fiction writer Tom Wolfe painted a vivid picture in his book From Bauhaus to Our House, visualizing the cosmogenic image of the school and the modernist movement in general as a white, blank slate. The country of the young Bauhäusler, Germany, had been crushed in the war and humiliated at Versailles. The economy had collapsed in a delirium of inflation. The Kaiser had departed. The Social Democrats had taken power in the name of socialism. Mobs of young men ricocheted through the cities, drinking beer and awaiting a Soviet-style revolution from the East. Or some terrific brawls at the very least. Rubble. Smoking ruins. Starting from zero. If you were young, it was wonderful stuff. Starting from zero referred to nothing less than recreating the world. We put our own spin on this tale of war and revolution in episode 10, examining Grotius's affiliation with the collectivist Arbeitsrat für Kunst in 1919. But despite Wolff's striking portrayal, after World War I, the smoking rubble was in France's present, Europe's future, and Tom Wolfe's boyhood. We shouldn't forget how much the Second World War's aftermath starkly impacted both modernism and the historical interpretation of it. There certainly was a revolution in Germany after the Great War, but it was an odd variant of the species. There was street violence, but not a protracted struggle. The monarch absconded. For several months, regimes churned like a rapid-fire French Revolution, but lacked a terror. The flawed but empowered constitutional republic that emerged was a direct descendant of the faulty but constrained constitutional monarchy that came before it. One might say about such political developments that these paths often appear, perhaps without sufficient grounds, to be very new. It is only their combination that is new. They are actually novel in relation to the number and type of earlier paths. To be new in relation to the past is, after all, a revolutionary characteristic, though the grand old earth's not yet thereby shaken. These words, however, were not from a 1920s pundit pushing newsprint at the Frankfurter Allgemeine. They were Paul Clay's, dwelling on the relationship between production and nature studies. Last episode, we introduced his 1923 essay, The Ways of Nature Study. It served 
as a summation of his Bauhaus lectures to that point. The starting point for these was the dialogue between artist and nature. Architecture itself is a fundamental mediation between a human subject and the natural surroundings, often literally a roof over our heads. So, given that people exist in an environment, what is built by or for these people is both a connection to and a separation from their surroundings. One wants walls, but also windows. How to shape the walls, where to place the windows, these are but a few of the many questions leading ad astra to the permutations that yield a staggering amount of possible combinations. Gravity, materials, time, resources, the instruments of engineering, all of them help solve for many of these variables, but they're never able to determine them all. And it is in this configuration space that the discipline of architecture lives and breathes. But how do we go about making sure the best choices among the many available are made, regardless of value, ideology, or opinion? Clay would urge that the study of nature, of that which surrounds humanity and embeds architecture in itself, should be the foremost vector of attention. But this by no means entailed, as was the case with Frank Lloyd Wright and other American vitalists, a worship of nature with a capital N. What Clay is offering us is a manner of examination. The tightly packed opening of this essay presents us with something that has since come to be called configuration space. Put simply, it is a decision tree applied to the process of creative output in which you begin with a situation, a problem, a canvas, an idea. Your first decision in an actualized project is to do something. If you imagine each decision taken, whether conscious or unconscious, as a fork in a road, what you'll eventually wind up with is a map with the branching characteristics of a family tree. At the start is the inspiration or ascendant of the project. When you stop, what you arrive at is its descendant. And it is the paths along this sort of map that are the actual ways of nature study that Clay refers to in his title. It is important to recall that Clay means nature in a very broad rather than strictly special sense here. 
though the transcendentalist tradition of the artist finding inspiration through losing himself in the wilderness can be applied to this framework, it is a special instance of a greater whole. Regarding art, Naturstudiums could mean still lifes, nude portraiture, or even line studies. In our own time, the term continues to be featured in the marketing materials for Germany's Art University of Halle. Under the heading Graphical Nature Studies, Spatial Drawing and Sketching, they write, Drawing means a character of line to find out what we see in reality with our eyes, invented by the imagination or set forth rationally. Such drawings are usually plain strokes and lines in different directions, lengths, shapes, and thicknesses. The whole difficulty consists merely in sensibly and legibly bringing the medium of drawing out onto a surface with the help of the brain, eye, and hand. If one considers together these complex powers of the eye, brain, Intellect and hand, drawing, is one of the most amazing achievements of man. Drawing is intellectual heavy lifting. Signing up for nature studies in Halle will not mean whistling in the woods, nor would it exclude the world of rationalized geometric thinking. In this contemporary example, as well as in Clay's, nature studies are an attempt to better understand the connection between mental and physical, concept and reality, plan and execution. So why was Clay, considered an abstract artist, so interested in connecting concept to reality? In An Intelligent Person's Guide to Modern Culture, his examination of modern art, Roger Scruton remarks, in a context that would be considerably ironic in the eyes of Tom Wolfe, who saw the modern movement as sterile and industrial, that a spiritual enterprise gave modernism its rationale. In Scruton's view, Clay was amongst a group of artists for whom abstract art was just that, an abstraction, going one stage further down the path marked out for us by Cezanne, the path which leads away from fleeting appearances to appearances of another, deeper and more durable kind, in which spiritual order is discovered in the simplest things by refining away the dross of present perception. Indeed, as in Clay's opening words, the dialogue with nature is shown to be an essential condition of the artist. By Clay's estimation, these fleeting appearances the combinations of paths taken, 
are the only thing that is new. The revolutions in Germany's government, in the world of art, and, one could argue, revolutions anywhere, never deliver wholesale on the promise of change they advertise. So, in art, as well as in politics, a cognitive dissonance and setting oneself up for disappointment would arise if, as Wolf portrayed it, one were starting from zero. It is in discovering Clay's remarks that we reveal this one-note characterization of the ideologically complex Bauhaus to be the straw man argument that it is. These paths often appear, perhaps without sufficient grounds, to be very new. It is only their combination that is new. They are actually novel in relation to the number and type of earlier paths. To be new in relation to the past is, after all, a revolutionary characteristic, though the grand old earth's not yet thereby shaken. Therefore, the joy at their novelty need not be minimized. The broader historical outlook should keep away from seeking a forced novelty that comes at the cost of naturalness. In German, the word for political revolution is Wende, literally a turning. It has connotations both bestirring and banal, as when in English an engine runs at a given number of revolutions per minute. The power of revolution is not dismissed or discarded by Clay. These are sage words of caution that urge artists and designers to set up a historical perspective in order to better understand the configuration spaces they are negotiating. The essay began by stating the dialogue between artist and nature as essential. It then defined a matrix-like relationship between subject and surroundings where each affects the other. Clay argued that this heuristic was as applicable to study as it was to production. And now, in what we just quoted, he lands upon his main point, that the joy of novelty should steer clear of being forced in a way that conflicts with naturalness. There may have been some at the Bauhaus who disagreed with him, and some would certainly disagree today. Is a building something that is meant to comfortably mediate between environment and the human? Or is it supposed to create a fissure between them? At this point, it is important to once again raise the distinction between art and architecture. In terms of creative production, they overlap. But architecture is a craft, and distinct 
from the fine arts. Art can be put in a museum. Architecture is the museum. Sculpture is for thinking about. Buildings are for being in. A once daring painting that falls out of fashion can be placed into storage. A quickly dated building mars a streetscape for decades. And as with much else concerning the ideas put forth at the Bauhaus, the latent conflicts they implied would come to a head in the architectural theory and practice of the late 20th century. But regardless of ideology chosen or values held, Clay's perspective, indeed his outlined method, remains, as he said, essential. Studying the relation between subject and surrounding is fundamental to navigating the configuration space within which the design process operates. And much like those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it, designing without a map can send one down the same four right turns endlessly. Join us as we step into the strange loop of phenomenology next time on Lapsus Lima.